Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick. Welcome to State of the Franchise, the podcast that talks about franchises of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, genres, and types. I am one of your hosts, Tom Stadler, here with my co-host as usual, the one and the only, Mr. Fred Dakin. Oh, don't. (laughs) What? I just wanted to set the mood. Now I got to put in like trumpets at the beginning and like (laughs) that, like score. That's like, I think it's like a handle song. (laughs) Yeah. You, you pan in on the podcast. We look like a little house, but then you realize it's not a dollhouse. It's an actual house and we're podcasting in it. Fred, you're, you're just making me anxious in in an episode where we're going to be talking about a lot of anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to talk about anxiety today. Talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about grief more than anything else. We're going to talk also about world class filmmaking. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, it's a it's a definite um, transition episode following our no longer scream of the franchise. This is kind of the the echo of the scream of the franchise, definitely. Or Frankenshise. Look at that. Mm -hmm. I was yelling at you about it, and now I didn't even get it right. It's a hard one because it's so complex and well done. You know, it's hard to get right. It's like a souffle. (laughs) That's true. I feel like next year we're just going to come up with something very simple, like this is scary. (laughs) (laughs) But but you're right. This is you know people who are just getting into the groove of us doing scary content. This is kind of us taking one step out and towards other you know stuff to talk about. Yeah, something more on the dramatic end, which uh, of course is the uh, filmography of Ari Aster, his unofficial grief trilogy. I think someone referring to. Yep, that I've heard it called that. Yeah, I'm sure it'll probably get a more official name as the years are. Uh, progress but it's still pretty fresh these movies are only made in the last five years yes yeah i'm sure one day we'll get like a criterion trilogy set you know and it'll be it'll get some great name for it then yeah absolutely and here to talk to us about uh ari aster and all of his exploits returning to the podcast is one mr nick kaldunsky welcome back to the show nick good evening gentlemen happy to be here and i gotta say we haven't even started and i already need a hug Oh. oh man, it's kind of you're like the unofficial guest for our non scary theme scary episodes because you you were on here for Goosebumps, which That's is right. kind of like you know the training wheels, the starter kit for an Ari Aster movie. Yeah, a bit, a bit. Although this almost falls more in, and we talked a little bit about uh, Mike Flanagan's series, which I think are also quite scary. I don't know. Have you guys watched both of those or all of them? Uh, I've only seen the the first two manners and a little bit of the the club, the Midnight Club. Oh, okay. I've only watched the first episode of the Fall of the House of the Usher. Just been busy. Yeah, I don't know. You didn't catch any of those things. I have not started. I do. I have Fall of the House of Usher pegged, uh, but got to jump in. There was just like no time. I felt like this past October. Yeah, I feel like a show Fall of the House of Usher. I can watch year round. I can't watch Friday the 13th year round. You got to get in like my Jason and my Freddy's during Halloween because and it's funny, like we were started watching the Goosebumps show. Uh But, you know, to bring that up, we were liking it. I haven't gone back since uh, Halloween because I'm like, I'm just not in the mood right now. But it's trying to wrap up so well. I know. This is it's a, actually a really good opportunity to talk back because that show has been good. Have you watched any of it, Nick? I've started it. Uh-huh. Uh, I 
with the two little kids running around, uh, I don't have quite as much time to throw the spooky stuff on. That's right. Uh, as I did before. In between the last episode and this one, you had a, yet another child. I did. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we should have, as like, you know, professional podcasters, we should have gone back, listened to the episode to see what our coulda, woulda, shouldas would have been for Ghost Goosebumps. Because I wonder if we, because I feel like we were like, we want a new show or new something that has more of the veins. We of talked the about the show that's out now. Though oh, we did? We did. Because I think when we started going through the coulda, woulda, shoulda, we were like, oh, wait a minute. There's something announced. It doesn't look legit. It might have Justin Long. <laughs> sure shit it's out it has him in it he's pretty good oh yeah <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. i mean he's he's definitely channeling the barbarian energy in that which well that's a movie we'll talk about at another time too mm-hmm. zach craiger's gotta have a trilogy of movies yeah do it <laughs> it's kind of like a little theme but um one of the fun things about ari aster i feel like is i've seen all of his movies in theaters fred by yourself i by myself with nick what that's right yeah that's right and Nick, I, I guess, what are some of your memories of those experiences now that we're about to dive into talking about all three of these movies together? Uh, uh, my experiences with Ari Aster's grief trilogy in theater. Um, <laughs> I think the, the best way that I can sum it up, and this is kind of just how I've been revisiting these movies recently, is uh, it's worse than you think, and it doesn't get better. <laughs> um, so it's... These are not popcorn slasher flicks, right? No. Like sometimes I want something a little lighthearted or, you know, I'm a fan of horror movies of all kinds. Um, these are a little heavy. These are a little deeper. Um, there's some recurring themes throughout them, but all three will leave you deeply disturbed uh, for very different reasons. Oh, yeah. Um, I thoroughly enjoy them, which is kind of weird to say. But at the same time, they can be a bit of a challenge. So uh, uh, revisiting them was a treat. Watching them in theaters was a great time, particularly because of the cinematography and the score for mm-hmm. all three of these, I think, is almost a character in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so getting that like the way that Ari Aster intended, I think, was probably the best introduction that I could have gotten. Yeah. These movies play supremely better in theaters. And I know that's true for most movies, but I feel these really play well in theaters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think for a first experience, too, to see it in theaters is something that it it will leave an impact on you. It did leave an impact, especially seeing Hereditary in theaters. Mm -hmm. And while I get to talk a little bit about Midsummer and and, uh, Bo is Afraid, there was just something so unnerving about watching Hereditary and just like it, I felt physically uncomfortable watching that movie. It's funny you say that because that feeling on second and third watches, you know, not in theaters. There are a lot of things that I picked up that I didn't see the first time mm-hmm. because the first time I think I was just physically trying to keep pace with the movie mm-hmm. because I was so like uncomfortable that there were just things that I missed that I just either didn't register or didn't pick up on just because I was in fight or flight mode yeah. you know, watching the movie. Well, and I think part of the first experience with either of these movies is you're trying to understand where it's about to go. And then when you kind of see the, 
the curtain get pulled back at the end and see what the whole picture looks like, which is uh, ironically kind of his his whole shtick. He loves to show you little hints of what you're about to see at the beginning of the movie and then only for the end to be like, ah, yeah, the mural at the beginning kind of shows you exactly all the beats we're going to hit throughout the film. Right. And it's like, and I think that's something that it makes every one of these a movie you want to revisit because you want to see how he weaves you through this. And then you can really sit back and enjoy the the artistry of what he's put together. And funny story about that is actually, we'll, we'll dive into more of it as we get to each movie. But to your point about the mural, you know, mm-hmm. in Midsummer, mm-hmm. actually at the beginning of every single movie, well, the three, you know, feature films all of them have deep foreshadowing on how the end of the movie is going to pan out. Yeah. So it's, it kind of goes back to that whole theme of like, um, not being able to have any control or your predestination of fate. Yeah. Um, as kind of bad as it may be in, in the cases of these characters, but yeah, that, that was something fun to pick up on. Absolutely. Fred, you saw all these in theaters, is that right? Yeah, I've seen all three of these in theaters. I I would say with Ari Aster, he, he's in this new Mount Rushmore for me. Mm-hmm. And there's only three spots. There's a spot for another filmmaker. I don't know who that's going to be. But there's these three guys who I love now who are making films. And it's Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, and Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. who all kind of came on the scene the same time and are doing horror but also doing more than horror with like all of their films. Like if you maybe more so Jordan Peele, but like if you ask them, well, even Jordan Peele with get out, doesn't call that a horror. He calls that a political thriller or social thriller. That's the word. Right. But all these filmmakers would probably scoff at the idea of calling any of their films, horror films, which is interesting to talk about. Well, yeah. And I think, cause it's kind of a way of the reinventing the horror genre in a way. Right. And I think you talk about two directors, too, who have a completely different way they want to approach a horror movie, right? Jordan Peele, obviously, is very much putting social commentary within that, whereas Robert Eggers is very much kind of revisiting, like, this feeling of being in a period piece. And, like, and so you have Ari Aster, who's very much, like, wants to focus on the family drama or, like, the the feelings of emotions and how you feel when you are scared and, like, what real, like, horror is to somebody else. It's like... It's not watching necessarily Freddy Krueger cut somebody up. Mm -hmm. It's, oh my God, this person lost somebody who has been such an integral part of their life and watching them try to put the pieces back together. And sometimes they can't. (laughs) Yeah. And I think one thing that makes them so successful is because of the subversion of the family values. You know, the, all three of them um, have elements of, you know, in many horror films, your family or your closest friend is your support. It's what gets you through the movie. It's what, Mm -hmm. how you survive at the end. And all of these movies in different ways subvert the very things that the family is supposed to be building your support Mm -hmm. or be your lifeline. And it's turning into the thing that does you in at the end. Um, And, and I think, you know, calling it, uh, we've called it the grief trilogy. I've heard it called a couple other things, but I think in general, the, recurring themes of family dysfunction um the the misuse or advantageous use of um comfort within a family mm-hmm. or the lack thereof is a major part of all of these films yeah 
And of course, uh, what we are talking about today with Ari Aster is his three um, feature length films to date. It is Hereditary, which came out in 2018. It is Midsummer, which came out in 2019. It is Bowen Afraid, which came out this year, right? 2023? Yes. Wasn't it around the time Renfield came out? It because that was really it was cool for our group theater to all go yeah, right. see that. And no one, everyone was like, no. I'm pretty sure it was early 2023. <laughs> yeah, it is 2023, of course. I was like, had a question. I'm like, it wasn't a year ago. No way. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's some very deep, deep-seated emotions and themes throughout these. He is a filmmaker that I think, yeah, like Freddie, the kind of way you said it, he's definitely putting horror into a totally different genre in itself, which is what is making horror so exciting. I'm very happy we're getting a chance to kind of dive into what that means. But um, I guess one of the things, though, I wanted to first kind of get throughout this episode is why have his movies resonated more than a lot of the other people who've been making horror recently? Like why is why is his movies kind of rose to the surface versus somebody else who, like I would say, like our maybe a Robert Eggers, you know, when we watch The Witch, which was a very good movie, like again, maybe right on the cusp of being a horror movie, and it was good, but there's something about the way Hereditary did it that felt different, right? So I don't know. What do you guys think? I think a big part of it has to do with just it's so well rounded, like Hereditary. It's deeply unnerving. Um, and and Ari Aster has shown that he is a master at developing tension mm-hmm. and anxiety. And I think just the fact that all throughout the film, be it music, be it script, be it cinematography, the actual act of the shot, everything is building to this tension pop moment and every aspect of the film works there's there's really nothing in any of these movies where you're like i didn't really like that or um that didn't really fit with the broader movie Mm -hmm. like within the universe that of the logic that he's building it works um and and i think something one of the reasons why a lot of people are resonating with these films or maybe resonates not the right word but like they're appreciating the auteur in his environment is it it's transcending horror. It's bringing in these other themes. It's, it's applying family drama through a horror lens to, you know, because sometimes bad things happen and there is no happy ending, um, which is another theme of his movies. None of them have happy endings. Um, And I would argue Florence Pugh maybe has a somewhat (laughs) <laughs> we, can t- we can talk about that i disagree but um th- i just i think people are connecting with it because it- it's elevating horror and i think that's something that has been missing for a- i mean it- what's the first thing that when you see a good horror movie one of the first things that anybody compares it to is the exorcist mm-hmm. well that's what the 70s yeah can we start comparing modern horror to recent elevated horror where you don't have to go back 40 years 50 years to to compare it to a mount rushmore movie Mm -hmm. and i think we're finally getting some of that 
Now, The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. Yes. Who another. you can hear us talk about on another episode. <laughs> In fact, two recent episodes, because we also talked about him on the Halloween sequel episode. But it's definitely, I think, something you just said, Nick, is is a big case for Ari Aster right now. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, too, Fred. But going back to a movie like Barbarian, I think a lot of the people were like, oh, this is kind of like the new Malignant or the new Hereditary. And I was like, ah, so we're already going back to 2018 and marking it as like, this is where horror shifted. And we're starting to do a different kind of horror movie. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I do think that uh, his films really, I I mean, the content of them, I'm going to just put that aside and talk about just like the framing of the shots and the use of music. Mm-hmm. The filmmaker he reminds me the most of is definitely Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. with the way his shot positioning, the way scenes seem can be abstract, but also feel like real Um and I don't want to, because I know we're going to hit all these movies, but the scene that feels the most Kubrickian to me, other than just his framing, is in Bo is Afraid, uh, after Walking Phoenix has sex with uh, Parker Posey, and her body is moved away, to me just looks like a shot out of like Clockwork Orange or something. Oh, and yeah. I just feel he is bringing like artisanship to horror films not just on the content of what we've been talking about the family dynamic but also like he shoots the shits out shit out of these movies he does i think that was not even the sequence i was gonna point out but we'll talk a little bit more about bo is afraid feels like a fever dream for about 80 percent definitely (laughs) yeah um and it's definitely just something that he's really kind of put a stamp on it and it's it's somebody who clearly has a passion for movies. And I think it's better to understand Ari Aster by going back to where he got started. Ari Aster was born on July 15th, 1986. 1986? <laughs> Fuck this guy. I'm I was born in 1990 so I can still live my life and oh, feel fine. That hurts my heart. I wrote it down and I even was like didn't resonate with me. I'm like this man is the same age as I am. Well, don't don't Google how young Paul Thomas Emerson was when he made Boogie Nights. Oh, uh, he like twenty seven. Yeah, <laughs> makes you feel good. Makes you feel real good. There's just that moment where you look at somebody's age and you're like, I've got things ahead of me. I can accomplish a lot. This man made three pretty well acclaimed movies, and he's not even forty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a guy who Martin Scorsese uses for influence on his new movie. He's like, That's, he was like, I'm really pulling from Ari Aster in this next one. Oh, my God. It's just, it's like that that type of statement. You're just like, oh, okay, I see. Because Jordan Peele is how old now? I'm, I'm looking him up, too. He's 44. Right. He's been around 40s. for a while because he was on the, not Saturday Night Live, but the other one. Matt right? TV. Yeah, Matt. You know, he's been kicking around for a while. Yeah, but wow. To so Ari Aster, thirty-seven years old. Thirty-seven. I mean, yeah, that's 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 young. So uh, new new idea for the podcast. Fuck Ari Aster. <laughs> is, that, is that where we're going? Forget this is guy. That what we're going with? Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, the takeaway. You know what? I'm not even going to go through the rest of it now. <laughs> <laughs> no. So he was. Uh. Yep. Yeah. Born in 1986. God, young, young strapping lad here is, uh, 
American filmmaker. I'm still composing myself. Brad Terry's like almost 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> right. Doesn't it just kill you? You're like, I, you know, in my life, I could write a book. I could I could make a movie or something one day. And it's just like people have been doing it for when you were still trying to figure your life out. Stylistically, his films are kind of notable for combining horror and dark humor, which that is something I do think we we pick up on more in a second viewing. You don't really want to laugh the first time around, but there's some good jokes in a couple of these. I think Midsummer is pretty funny. And I think Boa is afraid is going to take another watch or two whenever I feel up to it. But I think there's definitely, he's got jokes. Yeah. And you see that in his short films too. That's more his vibe. There's a lot more in the shorts. And then as you move through the the feature films, I think Hereditary has the least amount of like Mm -hmm. true humor. But yeah, the the dark humor uh, really comes out in Midsummer, And then in Bo, there's, it's just everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, and I think, or we'll talk about some of the performances coming up, but there's some people who in Bo is Afraid really bring a comedic background and you almost can't ignore what they're trying to do with their Mm -hmm. characters. So basically he embarked on a career in the film industry while he was a student at the American Film Institute. He wrote and directed two short horror films that were uh, deemed very, uh, revolutionary for the time they were made it was the strange thing about the johnsons munchausen and munchausen Munchausen. Mm -hmm. which Which is oh sorry go go ahead ahead. i was just gonna say munchausen which i know munchausen by proxy is the idea of like making your like child sick so they are attached to you Mm. which but was afraid i feel that dna is there Mm -hmm. and also i was just gonna say hereditary a movie that reminds me a lot of and i'm not talking quality wise just content wise is the sixth sense which also has a munchausen by proxy plot line in it oh really Mm -hmm. interesting because yeah man that is a very repetitive theme, yeah, and something that's very prevalent in that. And and just like the optics and the metaphor around that sort of sickness just feels ingrained in all his movies. The person you love is making you sick, but being nurturing. It, it goes back to the subversion and the deviation of family values, yeah. right? Like the, in, in Munchausen, it's the mom, um, we don't have to go too far into it, but basically the mom is poisoning her kid because the kid is about to go off to college Mm. and she doesn't want to lose him or be alone. So she's poisoning him to make him sick so he can't leave. And then you have to deal with the ramifications of that as, as a parent. So it just, it flows into the, just the overarching theme of like, what if your family sucks? Yeah. And I mean, it, Look, the through line throughout a lot of these movies, too. I think we see it less in Midsummer, but it sounds like kind of came around here. Ari Aster clearly did not have a healthy relationship with his mother. <laughs> like, I think the, the group thread that we even came up with while we were po- talking about these movies is Ari Aster hates his mom. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see a lot of that, that stress and that anxiety more in Hereditary and especially Bo is Afraid, which sort of puts it front and center and on full display. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I mean, there's clearly some kind of background. Whether or not there was ever physical trauma involved, I'm sure there was enough mental or emotional trauma. So originally in childhood, he had aspirations of becoming an author and became interested in filmmaking through the idea of screenwriting. But yeah, it wasn't until he hit college and had made these two short films that uh, he really considered 
going into a film career. And uh, he became obsessed with horror films as a child and frequently rented them from video stores. Later saying, I just exhausted the horror section of every video store I could find. I didn't know who to assemble or how to assemble people who would cooperate on something like that. So I just found myself writing screenplays for the things I wanted to make. And inevitably, uh, these two short films that he made got him under the scope of uh, A24, who wanted to obviously capitalize on the idea that, hey, you clearly have a very unique take on what you're doing. So that led him um, to creating Hereditary. But before I move on to that, do you guys have anything else you want to say about his other short films? Um, I mean, the strange thing about the Johnsons, that was his like thesis for his graduation at, at AFI. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I mean, that one in particular is another twisted family dynamic. Um, I don't know if you guys were able to find that one at all or any synopsis of that one, but basically uh, we don't need to go too far into it because it's pretty messed up. Um, but it's, it again, just emphasizes the, um, the subversion of the fame of the family dynamic in a twisted dark way. And the way that that one does it in particular is um, the, the son is uh raping his dad and the dad doesn't know how to handle it because he wants a relationship with his son but he doesn't want to like out his kid and then not only is the son raping the dad for a long time but he like writes a book about it and wants to like show this with the world and the mom is like checked out because she doesn't she doesn't know how to handle it Mm. but it all goes back to like, what if your family sucks? What are, you know, the core values of family support? And if you were to turn that upside down, what does that do to a person? Mm. And that I think you can really see where that built into hereditary into midsummer into bows of red, um, in different ways, but still kind of maintains that through line. Yeah, absolutely. God, that's, he just has a twisted mind, huh? Like, yeah, which is crazy because, like, he has that side of him, but then he's like got this weird, dark goofball energy, too. Where, like, I watched uh, it was like the turtle head, mm-hmm. and then it was um, about like a displaced person who's just yelling at the screen. It was a very Scorsese, say la, la vie, which was giving me real, like, early Scorsese vibes. Uh, those two. Did definitely had like the Bo's Afraid feelings where it was like this dark comedy that's extremely heightened. One's like a gumshoe detective that's like super horny. He's like, I can't think of the actor's name, but he looks like he could be a Murray, like an elder statesman <laughs> Murray. He looks like Brian Doyle Murphy, but uh, it's it, it definitely I could see the connection, but I was not seeing the hereditary and midsummer in those films. But based on what you said, it sounds like the short films you watched had more of that in them. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like Bradley Fisher is the name of that actor you're thinking of. The old guy? Yeah. And you've seen him in everything. Yeah, he's in yeah. Boa's Afraid. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Um, which is also funny because he did also have a short called Bo, which was the inspiration directly mm-hmm. for the movie Bo Was Afraid. We'll talk a little bit more about the parallels between those two because um, it started an actor who unfortunately passed away back in 2019. But, I mean, going from 
any film school actor to getting uh, Joaquin Phoenix, obviously, are going to be <laughs> leveling up your game quite a bit. But inevitably, yeah, his uh, short films led him to creating Hereditary. He originally pitched this as a family tragedy and was careful not to call it a horror film outright. In fact, I think his original thought process, and we talked a little bit about this off pod, was that he wanted to make just a family drama. Right. The marketing took care of the horror aspect. Yeah. And it very much is a family drama. And, you know, he was a fan of domestic dramas, incorporating a lot of themes of the genre into his script. He kind of envisioned a film that was very rooted in, like, family dynamics, the ideas of dealing with grief and trauma, citing Carrie, um, the Stephen King adaptation, and a movie called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which actually was the one that I think he pointed to as, like, his major inspiration. Yeah, that movie, whenever he talks about movies, always comes up. And I've never even heard of that movie before reading about it here. But uh, a 1989 crime drama that had Dumbledore himself, Michael Gambon, in it. I was going to say, Richard Harris? <laughs> no, no. If it had Richard Harris, yeah, I'd be <laughs> probably running to check it out. It also had uh, Dame Helen Mirren in it. Oh, yeah. interesting. So, I mean, obviously, something that impacted him a lot. But um, he interpreted the his film, though, as two halves, which are completely inextricable from each other. Uh, it was his quote. It begins as a family tragedy and then continues down that path, but gradually curdles into a full bore nightmare, mm-hmm. which I don't think you could put it any better than that, um, because it's really I think we can start talking about hereditary now on itself. But is just it kind of presents itself as it's a sort of a, a very dour tale. And you can kind of see this family is not right. The connections just all seem sort of distant from one another and. All of a sudden, yeah, it gets around the third act. The things kind of go haywire. Go a little off. They go a little off path. A little off path. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think this is one where, um, you know, it originally did not do well. It was not well reviewed when it first came out in theaters, and I think a big part of that was because, to your point, Fred, the the marketing really played up the horror aspects it of looked the movie. like a blumhouse movie it yeah just, i mean yeah. it really played up the third act without giving anything away when when you watch the movie like the full two-thirds of it are there really isn't any like supernatural thing happening yet um there there's it's a lot of slow build um but there's just this overwhelming sense of dread and like anxiety and tension that he builds from literally the first shot. And it, yeah. when you guys were talking about some of the, the blocking and the cinematography, the literally the sequence that I first thought of was the opening shot in hereditary because they do the zoom in. They're going through Annie's workshop um, and showing all the miniature models and everything, but every single shot in that entire sequence is either slightly off kilter. So it's tilted, um, which distorts your vision or the subject of the shot is not perfectly centered. So it's off to one side or off to a corner or anything like that. And there's literally nothing happening. There's no one in the room. It's, it's empty. You're just being panned through with the camera, but it's so unsettling just because of the way that it's shot and from like literally moment one after the 
opening credits rolled, you're like, I'm in trouble. This is, this is going to be a ride. Uh, and it, and it is, um, it, it really sets the tone right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Like the initial trailers, I think I, you, you made a good point. The whole second third of the movie, which is the movie I feel is not shown in the trailers. It was very much, uh, this is a creepy disturbed girl movie. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was what the trailer yeah. made it look like with the feels of the third act. Like yeah. that's what we're going to get. And it was just funny. Like I went into it because I like movies. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. like I'm like, Oh yeah, this is my usual garbage bread and butter. And just getting this movie instead was such a surprise. Yeah. Where it's a movie, which is funny that the third sequence or the third, third of the movie is such a kind of that traditional, like sort of like supernatural horror element film because throughout most of it, you're like, is any of this even real? Like, mm-hmm. is this all just tricks and like people are not seeing things? Cause you're, you're already questioning almost every family member sanity except for the dad, because he's just, <laughs> you Daniel Bruins so doing bad. like the Yelman's work of that movie. <laughs> just like steady hand. Yeah. I feel so bad for the guy. Cause he's trying to like keep a handle on this spiraling situation and it just does not pan out at all for him. Certainly not for him. No, no, I just definitely felt bad he didn't get anything real juicy juicy to do because he's the kind of actor you can give something juicy to, you know? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, yeah, you look back at him in The Usual Suspects, and it's like you're convinced for a while he's Kaiser Soze. Like, you're like, yeah. this is who this guy is, and then it, only for everything to get flipped around, and we don't have to get done to all the usual suspects. There's a lot of icky people involved in that movie, but yeah. <laughs> icky people, the movie. Yeah, yeah really. Well, we could just talk about end of days where he plays the devil. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Which, yeah, I think is, I think it, in casting him too, you kind of play off this pre, you know, set notion that there's something not right about him and that maybe he's involved somehow. But really, it's just like, and what he does such a great job at is convincing you that, no, I am literally just a guy here. And then the only moment that you really question is when he's not telling um, Annie, his wife, about the fact that her mom's grave was desecrated because yep. he clearly mm-hmm. was trying to protect her yep. feelings. But right. So you just realize this is a very delicate situation and shit's not going well. <laughs> and from the get-go, I feel like with this movie and all those movies, you kind of see the Ari Aster thing, which I think he does these like horror motifs, metaphors, whatever you want to call them. And then he like instills like a reality version of it where the big plot of Hereditary is her. She had this mom who was controlling, who wanted mm-hmm. to control her kids the opening shot of Hereditary is her building these models that she can control. Yeah. After her, we're getting into it. Daughter gets decapitated. What does she mm-hmm. do? She has to control and make Builds the diorama. Uh, it's not a diorama. Whatever. The model yeah. of the that. miniature. The yes. miniature. Yeah. And the miniatures are, first of all, they're stunning. Like, and mm-hmm. part of the reason that opening sequence you're mentioning works so well, Nick, is because literally every detail of these miniatures, they made a like detail for detail duplicate of the set that they built for the house so as you're zooming in you're like oh this is unsettling everything's kind of off kilter suddenly somebody walks in the room of what you assume is a dollhouse yep. and you're like how the hell did they do that yep. and that's when i knew we were cooking yeah. i remember being in the theater seeing that being like hell yes yeah, yeah. and i mean you think it's it's a magic eye trick but no it was just very clever cutting yep. and 
he is such a director that is not afraid to use stillness to instill the like, tension in a moment. And it's all throughout. I mean, Hereditary does it better than any. I think mean, we see it a lot in Midsummer too, but there is just, he's not afraid to let somebody sit and stare out at nothing for a minute solid. And you're just thinking like, what is going through this person's head? There's a lot of lingering shots. And, but to go back to like Ari and his master tension building, none of those lingering shots ever go too far mm-hmm. to where, you know, cause if they go too far, now you're actually relieving some of that tension because nothing's happening. It's, it's a perfect balance of it's not a quick cut and it's just long enough that you're like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. And just when you're like, is anything going to happen? Then it cuts to something else and it's building tension through the next shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He only stays on it when it's uncomfortable, which is like the Tony Clutt cutting her head off is a beat too oh, long. Jesus. Yeah. You know, like it stays longer than you want it to. That's when he stretches it out. Or uh, there's like a scene Bo is afraid when uh, the naked guy stabs him a bunch of times. Yep. Yep. That goes a few seconds too long. Yep. But I think it plays with what you're talking about, the tension moments that cut away perfectly. And then he leaves you in the, the shitty part. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm as soon as you said the Tony Collette cutting her head off with a friggin' piano wire, the, there's like two or three squelches that are like very obviously extra. And Mm -hmm. it just that was a part that like on my second watch, I almost had completely forgotten that that part happened. Yeah. And then you see it again. You're like, oh, my God, that's unsettled. And she's like making eye contact with the camera. Oh, yeah. And he's doing the thing that people do later with films. Like I the the scene I think about is in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the scene where Brad Pitt goes to the Spalding Ranch. And that scene is like a horror tension scene. Mm-hmm. I feel Ari Aster with his first film was like, oh, if I were to do horror, it'd be fantastic and be like this and be pitch perfect. That's not really what I'm interested to do. But if I was going to do it, it'd be perfect like this. Yeah. And that's like the last 20, 30 minutes of Hereditary. And that made me think of this, like people who has like Tarantino to do horror movies. Like, oh, I could do that. And I could do it perfectly. Here's an example. But that's not what I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. And it's just, and I think it's, it's the, the great trick that he's even playing this entire movie is like almost like just imbuing like little horror elements throughout without even letting you really know that it's kind of a horror movie until really it turns into a full bore horror movie. And I think to kind of summarize, you know, what the way that this story goes, because of, you know, we start, you said, we're talking about like, it's Tony Collette's character. Like she's at the funeral for her mother, giving the dissertation or not dissertation, the, uh, the service eulogy. eulogy. eulogy thank you. you. Um, and you know, and then as they get back, you know, you can tell that there's there's something not right with this family and mostly with the daughter. And Fred already kind of <laughs> dived into this because, you know, the daughter just seems like, you know, there's she's something, you know, it's just not right with her. She's very quiet. She's very disassociated from reality, you know, and loves tree houses, loves tree houses, building little dolls, <laughs> cutting heads off birds. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, she's the typical creepy little girl. And one of the things that the trailer did well, you were like, oh, the trailer really made it look good. It made it look like she was going to be in this whole movie. Right. Until, yeah, we hit a scene where she goes to a party with her brother who, you know, she got tailed along or got forced to tag along because he's like, you got to go do it. You got to be go socialize. And 
lo and behold, you know, has like an allergic reaction to a nuts that we established earlier in the movie. She's allergic to brothers driving home high and she's trying to gasp for air and oh, swerves, hits a pole, knocks her head off. And that is a scene that I wanted to end like immediately. And no, we're going to sit with every single thought Mm -hmm. that Alex Wolf is having. His character of Peter is just sitting there at the wheel coming to grasp what he just did and oh my god i just i just remember in the theater like my jaw dropped and i think it stayed open for 20 minutes i was like i cannot believe this just happened i can't believe we're just stuck like having to like i felt so bad for that character and and uh the kid that plays peter i can't think of his name alex Alex wolf yeah he plays it perfectly because like yes he's high but at the same time he's coherent enough to like know what happened and just the shot of him sitting in the car and the panic on his face, but he's frozen and the little fleeting like eye movement to the rear view mirror. And he can't even like look cause he knows he, he heard it. Like he knows what happened. He knows she's dead cause she's also not gasping for air anymore. Yeah. He like, he knows and he just can't even bring himself to like have a sustained gaze into the back seat mm-hmm. is and then he like drives home and doesn't tell anyone and just goes to bed. Like just the, the performance of the shutdown of PTSD. It's mind blowing. It's so good. Mm-hmm. And we get our first of many of like anguish crying, like, which I feel yeah. like Bo, I don't, I don't remember Bo has one. That's a long movie, but I feel like he, he's got that in at least the first two, just so on like, on the ground, mm-hmm. fully just like full emotion crying. Yeah. And it's the most upsetting thing with like a score pounding and just uh, yep. first of many decapitations we see in these mm-hmm. movies too. Which are actually foreshadowed. Uh it's funny you say that because there's so um one, going back to the score, uh Ari was doing an interview and he said basically that throughout the entire score there is a sub bass level tone that is almost inaudible, but it causes a physical reaction of like unease as you're hearing it, which is also why it's better in theaters. But that is throughout basically the entire movie of hereditary that it comes and goes, but it's the whole time. And they are specifically using the music to like, just mess with you. Um, And the, the whole like cult manipulation, how much, Who's doing it? Is Annie sleepwalking? Is it the cult? Like all of that going around and around and around of what is happening to these people until you finally, it finally comes out. But it's the, the pacing is fantastic. It's also very much, I feel spiritual sequel to Rosemary's baby. I feel oh, yeah. that's the movie. He really gives me seventies horror in hereditary. I mm-hmm. feel, I mean a little bit of midsummer too. I feel Trying to think when uh, the original Not the Bees came out, the Christopher Lee. Oh, uh, the Wicker Man. The Wicker, Wicker Man. Man. Yeah. Like that, that's definitely the feel of uh, Midsommar. But the first, yeah, Hereditary definitely to me feels like Rosemary's Baby. And the ending is a very similar ending, too. I mean, yeah, it's definitely got the staple of cult films. And we'll definitely talk about the cult and the the real use of um, like demonology and like, you know, like mythic arts from like history in this movie, which I think makes it a little more 
disturbing. Like that was kind of a rabbit hole I fell down finally after this one. Yeah. Any sort of movie where they're like, okay, there's this demon called Shagoo and he's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Any movie that does that, I'm like, I'm scared. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because then it starts to get into. I mean, you start to feel like, oh, wait, this doesn't feel so fictional in a way, which I mean, yes, it is. And it isn't right. It's like it's somebody believed it at one point. It's like believing though that like Zeus existed. <laughs> but I think it, where we definitely get into the, the real meat of this movie is definitely after the daughter's death, because that's when we see Tony Collette, who was morning but you could tell really didn't miss her mom mm-hmm. maybe the yeah. first hint we get in a feature-length film that like okay maybe things weren't so great with mm-hmm. Ariana's mother but then we see this mother mourn so deeply for her daughter who she really didn't have a good relationship with but maybe that's why she mourned her even more yeah there's a lot of regret a lot of like I mean, and I think that's another theme we we see throughout all three of these movies. And I think it's a good chance to start really putting pins in a lot of the things we're going to keep revisiting is that, you know, as much as that, it's people that you get close to who are kind of poisoning you, right? But it's also people that it's like, God, if I had just done things differently, Mm -hmm. this could have been a really good thing. And it's so sad, especially a a young daughter who is only 13 in the movie to die Mm -hmm. at that point. And there's something really scary about, you know, if you put yourself in Alex Wolf, the son's shoes, post the sister dying, just the idea of like, and another theme that's going to come up in other movies is like saying, hey, you know, I know I messed up to my mom and your mom just not quite buying it and blaming you. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. she blames him, whether she she kind of outright does say it towards the end, but from the get go at that first dining room or dining scene where like the, uh, he says, what about they you blow mom? up at each other? Yeah. Yeah. Like from that moment on, you can see she has these awful feelings. Hers her son, which is mm-hmm. unsettling and scary because it's the subversion of the family dynamic. Your mother is someone that you're supposed to have comfort from. And this is not the case. And I don't know to me as being, you know, I'm, I'm a, died in the root mother's boy you know like my dad passed away when i was 10 and my brother went to school overseas so it was just me and my mom Mm. and there's things in these movies that i have a great awesome relationship with my mom but because he's heightening these things that i think a lot of people go through i see those things and they're heightened and i'm like oh god i'm scared (laughs) like i i can relate and I think it's similar when I talk about Sopranos, like I am not like those people, but when you see them have similar sufferings and similar things you're going through, you're like, Oh, I'm relating to this awful thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's just playing on family dynamics that maybe, or maybe you don't recognize too. And I know at least for myself and I know Nick, you as well, we have sisters, you know, and it's like imagining going through a traumatic event where it's like, Clearly, it was there was no malintent involved. It was just a fuck up. But it's like, but now it's like you have to wear this whole like burden for the rest of your life that you murdered your only sibling. And right. I mean, like you even think about it for a moment, and it's just like it's enough to just like feel make you feel. And you have that awful. guilt because you were high, and whether or not mm-hmm. that is why she died, it you were it, at the time, and so yeah. you're gonna think about that, you know? Right. Well, and he's already suffering from PTSD before that even happens because his mother tried to kill him while she was sleepwalking. Right. right. So like, there's this whole like passed on inherited 
trauma and the the inevitability of you know what's happening to these people and i think actually just the title of hereditary goes a long way in cementing like the the horror of not having control over your predetermined fate because hereditary it's inherited you you don't you don't get a choice like yeah. if you the the traits you bring on from your parents they're ingrained or they're genetic so you really don't have a choice and from the title just the get go the jump Ari's like yeah these people are screwed they don't know it and there's absolutely nothing that they can do about it yeah so and that's the that's the thing is the abstract thought of it and the press nice is hereditary what you get from your parents and also you're getting a demon literally yeah. <laughs> like yeah. so that's yeah. like that's the Ari Aster bread and butter I feel is like the big abstract thought and then we're also going to do it in reality too yeah and as you sorry I didn't mean to cut you off but as you're going through all of with hereditary and you're looking back at kind of this family dynamic and you're looking at like little bits on second and third watches that I finally picked up on was like oh this mom is not Annie but the the matriarch the dead grandma at the beginning she's tried this like possession ritual before and it caused annie's brother to kill himself yeah and oh she sunk her claws into um charlie the little sister played by millie shapiro um and there's actually like the more you watch it the more you look at it there's this theory that um the demon is actually already in charlie Mm -hmm. and was put there by the grandmother and one of the reasons why the third act is so messed up is there's a byline in the little book that's talking about the demon that if he's not given a male host he becomes vengeful and Mm. and violent and that he's been stuck in millie for charlie for years um which is why she likes building dolls which is why her head is on one of those giant dolls at the end of the movie. Yeah. And it's why she's a little weird and why she's quiet and why she doesn't yeah. really fit in anywhere. Um, and her death sets the entire rest of the movie in motion because it starts the possession ritual. Well, yeah. And I think there's something that's, I think, tragic about that, too, that this little girl never even was really given a chance to be a little girl. She was always and I think that's kind of the case with all the children coming down from that grandmother. Nobody was ever really themselves. Once the little once um, Annie's brother died, the mom, like her brother. Suddenly it was like, no, 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 you got to have kids. I need yeah. you to give me a boy so mm-hmm. that they can put this demon in the body. And then obviously she didn't want the grandma to anywhere near him. Rightfully so had mm-hmm. the instinct of like, you're going to do something terrible to my son. You're not going to get anywhere near him. So of course she's going to take the next one and do the next, whatever she can. And it's, it's just, it's, it's terrible to think that like, yeah, it even started from the top. This mom was already sowing these terrible seeds for a fortune that she was never going to actually like, enjoy mm-hmm. right like and yeah uh, that's kind of it's the tragic kind of twist of fate it's all these other followers that get the benefit from it but i don't know it's uh it, it's kind of crazy just because you think you have a handle on the story and it just keeps twisting and telling you when ann dowd comes in in the second act mm-hmm. you're like and here is somebody who is like here i'm a helpful person i'm a shoulder to cry on Somebody who is looks like the most legitimately like supportive person is actually the person doing the most harm of anybody. Mm-hmm. Someone you met you. in a support group. Yeah. Right. And it's like, and he's instilling these 
feelings of like you can't even support or you can't even trust the people that you're supposed to be turning to at the mm-hmm. time if you can't trust your family. Like, who can you trust? It's like, no, you're doomed. Like you were said, like it's kind of written in stone and we're here. It's it's interesting watching the movie because, you know, the audience knows what Annie knows and their family and it we piece it together along with the family and it, the whole movie is structured like this family is the sacrificial lambs. They don't know it and you don't know it until they're until it's inescapable. And, yeah. and there are outside forces controlling everything that they're going through until, you know, this King Paimon is is finally released. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you, you mentioned the the beheadings, uh, decapitations. And in the little book where, you know, it, she's flipping through pages and, and it just it that's where it introduces this King Paimon as a demon. He's riding, I think it's a camel. Mm-hmm. Um, but attached to his belt is a strap with three heads mm. and there are three decapitations in the movie and it starts with Charlie, the, the daughter, mm-hmm. um, there is the cult's symbol is carved into the post that she hits her head on mm-hmm. and the deer that's in the road is obviously placed there. And then eventually they find the body of the grandmother also decapitated and then the final decapitation is tony collette uh which she does herself while uh possessed by pyman yeah so it's that there's a lot that like there is a fine web that ari aster (laughs) weaving throughout this movie that all pays off in the last you know 10 minutes yeah he really even realized too that that's what's going on. I mean, because yeah, we really do dive into once she meets Anne Dowd, we see her go through these whole motions of like, well, she's acknowledging she's had these sleepwalking episodes and like she doesn't even feel right in the head and like she feels guilty about all these things. So you're really questioning whether she's a reliable narrator because mm-hmm. we see so much from Annie's perspective until it does switch to Peter. And suddenly we kind of see, hmm, okay, maybe there's a little more going on that we didn't know about. Yep. So yeah, it does get revealed out and out that it was actually a cult that was <laughs> trying to raise Paimon and Paimon, Paimon, I don't know. Paimon, Paimon, hail Paimon. That's right. Yeah, everybody's doing their little hails at the end. Mm-hmm. Very but, much like Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Man, it really is an interesting parallel between those two. Mm-hmm. They're both slow burns that end with like the coming of a Satan or demon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And man, there's just something, it's just so unsettling once the curtain is pulled back all the way because yeah, you really don't know what we're seeing, but there's just those still frames. You see these followers kind of like strolling throughout the house, the smiling guy, oh, the smiling guy, the smiling dude in the closet. Oh, and no. Oh my God. Just and stark his, naked. But his face is lit up in just the perfect way that it like, it's the like flashlight at a campfire kind of thing. Yeah. And, oh my God. It, yeah, that makes me think there's like an early scare where after the grandmother died that Tony Collette's just in a room and I think she like turns out a light and you just see the grandmother in the mm-hmm. corner for a hot second, which it looked the way he shoots it, it looks like a trick of your eye. Yeah. Like, and it yeah. is frightening. Yeah. And I think I got goosebumps. Look at him. Look at him. <laughs> I see them. They're real. They are real. I mean, who hasn't had that moment in their life where you turn on a light and you think you see somebody standing in the room and it's like, oh, it's just a sweatshirt. That pile of clothes. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I've definitely had moments of had a jump in the middle of the mm-hmm. night. But 
turns out to be nothing. But yeah, I think it's it's something that you know we only get a, te- a tease of these spiritual elements because Sandow teaches her how to like summon the dead, right? She summons Sandow, summons her grandson, and mm-hmm. he's drawing on the chalkboard. And then she thinks she's summoning uh, Charlie into the house that is Annie now, and it's like, and suddenly, yeah, it really gets into okay, now we're moving into full-on supernatural horror. Yeah, until, yeah, we get this crazy ending. And it really, it's almost jarring to realize it was that all along, right? Because you're like, what? Like, it was a cult? There's plenty of clues throughout. You can definitely see it on the second way through. But even still, I remember the first time being like, that was it was people manipulating the situation and Mm -hmm. and i keep comparing it it's very much to me like the sixth sense where you rewatch it and like every all the little clues are there that you follow and there's like almost like a rule to the movie yeah and you're like oh yeah oh it's right there the whole time yeah the smiling guy is at the funeral yeah Yeah. i mean it is like a magic trick where hugh he wants you to look at one thing throughout the whole movie so that you don't see what's right in front of you yep which is something that we do see in Midsummer. So Hereditary um, modestly grossed $44 million at the U.S. and Canadian box office, but ultimately made $82 million worldwide. A uh, budget of like twenty, I would guess. Budget of $10 million. What? So after that, uh, Mr. Mr. Astor was pretty much given a little bit of a blank check, as uh, yeah. other podcasts like to call it. <laughs> Which ones? Um, uh, I mean, you know, we can't say it's in, in the name potentially. So, in May 2018, uh, it was announced after the release of Hereditary, or I'm sorry, this was even before that, that Ari Aster would write and direct uh, the movie. Midsummer with uh, Lars Knudsen serving as producer from Be Real Films, which was a Swedish company, and uh, was producing the film alongside Square Peg with A24 back to distribute. So, um, after Hereditary had been a big critical success and made over eighty million, which is pretty dang good for a ten million dollar budget, right? Right, like I mean, it, it's I think you had all the marks you were going to see of like we're ready to give this guy another go. It was A24's highest grossing film worldwide at that time. So, I mean, for... They've got got a backlog, Mm -hmm. too. Like, A24's got a lot of good movies. I mean, A24, I think, is now a prestige name. It's what Miramax was (laughs) back in the day. And it's totally without the... Hopefully without the crappy uh, people at Mm -hmm. the top. So, according to Astor, he had been approached by Be Real executive Martin Karlfist and Patrick Anderson to helm a slasher film set in Sweden, which is an idea he initially rejected as he felt that he had no way into the story. Um, But he ultimately devised a plot in which the two central characters are experiencing relationship tensions, verging on a breakup and wrote the surrounding screenplay around that theme. I described the result as a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror, folk horror film. Astor has mentioned uh, the 1981 film Modern Romance as an inspiration for Midsummer, and called it the Wizard of Oz for perverts. <laughs> All right. Let that one sink in for a second. Uh, he worked with the production designer to develop the film's folklore elements and the traditions of the Harga while visiting um, Helsingo. And uh, together they researched um, some of these like centuries old farms that typically had paintings on the walls and developed a stylized version 
for the set, uh, for this uh, May Day celebration or whatever, the Midsummer celebration that was in Sweden and German and English folklore, which is something he really starts to dive into, I think, as well in Bo is Afraid. Like we start to see some of those same seeds can carry on. Uh, he also researched spiritual movements and communities, saying that he particularly drew inspiration from Rudolf Steiner's anthrop- anthropos- anthroposophy mm-hmm. <laughs> and the theosophy. That makes sense, because like, aren't they all anth- all the guys anthropologists? They're all grad students, right? Like yeah. They're writing their thesis. Um, the guy, um, William Harper, Josh, is the character. Uh, uh, Cheaty from the good place Mm -hmm. Um, he's you know specifically wants to write his thesis on the harga um as an anthropological or um you know a study of these people and it all goes wrong (laughs) now what do you guys think about this movie this one is interesting to me because where hereditary was there's a lot of dark. There's a lot of, you know, very blue tones early on that shift to red tones once the demon is out and um, the, sp- the supernatural and hereditary. All of that is kind of completely juxtaposed in Midsummer, right? Like mm-hmm. it's bright and shiny. It's gorgeous setting. It's outside. It's, you know, there's flowers everywhere. Um, there really isn't like a spirit, a supernatural aspect. Like they're praying to their deity and, and they're, that there's a spiritual nature to the cult, um, the Harga, but there's not like a demon pulling the strings. Uh, this is just like, it's kind of a, a, a backhanded uh, review or allegory for religion in general. Um, it's also plays on the twisted nuclear family codependence um uh, manipulation via emotional override or support. Um, so it can, it fits his lo- overarching themes. Um, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful movie mm-hmm. and it's still dread, terror, horrifying scenes. Um, a lot of foreshadowing, uh, he literally tells you exactly what the entire movie is going to be with the mural, uh, in, in each part. Um, and I personally really, I'm challenged by the ending because I know it's to your point, Tom earlier, um, it's supposed to appear positive because of the smile on Florence Pugh's face, which she's fantastic. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to realize that she just killed all of her friends and is now indoctrinated into a murder cult. So, like, like she lives, but... Eh. But considering where she started the movie... Yeah, some friends, I'd say. Yeah. Oh, they're they're all absolutely <laughs> awful. I mean, yeah, so they are anthropology student, which is leads to why I couldn't pronounce uh, the word anthroposophy, because... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't used to seeing it written like that. <laughs> but um, I mean, yeah, I think the thing that you noted on Nick is that Midsummer really zigs where hereditary zags, right? Yeah. It's like, it tries to be the complete like photo negative of that movie in both that you almost expect a lot of the similar things that 
hereditary did and the movie kind of shows you throughout that it's like oh it's none of that it's none of that only for it to be at the end and you realize oh it was a cult trying to murder them all (laughs) (laughs) with the whole time the whole time um which there is something about i think another theme in that what what harm a group of people can do to the world when they all are aligned on a cause which you know we've never seen that in real life (laughs) i mean (laughs) it's a deviant form of the family support system yeah and i mean i think you have to go from the start though to kind of see where the movie evolves because we do see like literally a family torn asunder immediately out the gate where we see florence pugh's danny realizes something's wrong with her sister she's gotten all the warning signs she calls her parents like the right thing to do only to realize it's too late like you know everything Mm. is already set in motion her sister has performed a very awful way to commit suicide and Mm. kill her parents in the process yeah she kills them by gas and then she spends the rest of the movie being gaslit by her boyfriend yeah there you go well yeah, he does. He's kind of a dick. Uh, well, I didn't tell you about that, babe. I'm pretty sure I told you about that. Oh, it was, your, it was your birthday? I <laughs> sorry about. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, look, there's times, even in my life, not necessarily my current relationship, although obviously you have moments, but that I felt like a bad, significant other. But this guy really re- makes you realize, you know, maybe that wasn't so bad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, on the second watch, I like I wanted to give him a little bit more benefit of the doubt because like he's going to break up with her and then her family dies and he like can't go through with it anymore. And then you watch it again. You're like, no, you're just an asshole. Like you're completely emotionally barren. You're manipulative. You're it's just not not a good situation. Yeah. I mean, you almost realize then. Yeah. Like. By removing the rest of her family from her life right out the gate in this movie, she's left with somebody who she's relying to support on who is like maybe the worst person she could have mm-hmm. right. relied on. Um, but yeah, I think to to just some might, you know, some feelings on it, I think based on what I expected from Hereditary, uh, I expected a lot of things to be different. And I think at first when I watched this, I was a little disappointed and because I was like, "Mm," I was expecting maybe something a little different. But then I think on the second watch, I'm like, I was able to appreciate the movie a little more for what it was. And it is a beautiful movie. You're absolutely right. What were your feelings on it, Fred? I think it's I still have I still can't decide whether it's my second or third favorite. I think Hereditary is just pretty tight. Yeah. And I love that about it. But I think it's his best shot and best looking movie by far. And it is a movie that I can throw on. And even though it is dark, it just looks so damn good that I can just enjoy it sort of. And, um, I really think it's got, it's got my favorite scene in Ari Aster movie, which is when she finds out and she's like crying and her shitty boyfriend's consoling her. And it like, pans out and then the snow hits and then it's got this like music the score kicks in yeah and i don't know to me like that was just some of the best uh filmmaking i've seen in all three of his films just the way it kicks in like that and it's just very intense yeah oh my gosh it's such a 
it's such a devastating movie in so many parts. And I think the, what really gets you, and we talked about like the, the low tone and hereditary, the sounds in all throughout this movie, even beyond the score, the rhythmic echoing that the, the community that they visit like mm-hmm. does with people. It's so haunting, but in a way it's kind of like pretty like definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what's so unsettling about it. It's like, ah, oh, they're making these like kind of very like harmonic noises. And you realize there's sort of some like sadness behind some of them and sort of like deviousness behind them. Yeah, he uses a different composer for this one. I know Hereditary and Bo's Afraid, I believe, had the same composer. And in this one, he used someone else. I think there is really some nice melodic stuff in two. In, in, two, two. in Hereditary. Two. Yeah, That's how Ari Aster <laughs> likes him called, right? So tell me more about two. Yeah, okay. yeah no, one was something good, but two, oh man, let's talk about that composer. Uh, <laughs> it was Midsummer composer. His name is Bobby Krillick, mm-hmm. uh, aka the Haxon Cloak. <laughs> Ooh. All right, I know, man. You got just got a nickname. Feeling yourself if you got like a name. It's not even a DJ name. It's like um the Haxon Cloak. Since <laughs> my Swedish impression. So he did Hereditary. That was Midsummer. Oh, he did okay. Midsummer. Okay. The Hereditary composer's name is Colin Stetson. Yeah. And the Bo is Afraid composer is um, also the same one as Midsummer. Oh, I had it mixed up. Uh-huh. So two and three have the same composer. The and Cloak was back. <laughs> Get in. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's uh, I've, I always thought he had the same guy for all three films. I thought they're kind of similar scores, but it was interesting to find out he mixed it up. No, it was interesting because I think I read that Colin Stetson on Hereditary was hired like two years before production even began because mm. he just loved his music so much and was like, I need this. And he worked with him on like the score well before the movie was even filmed so that he kind of had an idea of what he was even dealing with going in, which is totally backwards because mm-hmm. it was like, yeah. When you have Star Wars, you got George Lucas kind of handing John Williams these scenes like, here, I need, I need something kind of symphonic and loud. Yeah. <laughs> I need a noise uh, that you can't hear that makes you feel sad. <laughs> it's kind of like the brown note, but for emotions. Yeah. I don't want people shitting in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I mean, some people might have shit themselves I a mean- couple of these things. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, going back to Midsummer and getting back to the moments, I mean, there are so many times when there's the absence of the score that kind of sits with you. And then when the score kicks in, you're just sort of like in a whirlwind. And I think his feeling of calling it like the Wizard of Oz for perverts is such an interesting way because you do kind of feel like that between the beginning and the end from Fred talking about the scene in the snow and the darkness to all of a sudden this bright green country. I don't know. And there's drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's drugs. And I love the visual visualizations they use with the like hallucinogenics, how they like seeded in later mm-hmm. in the movie. Like her, if her headdress for flowers are like pulsing at times, yeah. and it's just this little effect. Uh, well, and then there's also like, there's the image of her sister wearing the mask in the trees um, as she's being crowned as the May queen. Mm-hmm. And then after like right before she's, wearing the full cloak she like hallucinates seeing her sister in the crowd of the harga um and, and like things like that that just stick through like oh and her entire, mom and her mom yeah, yeah like walks by yeah, yeah they, it's just sticks through the entire throughway so there's that there's always that backdrop of like how much is the lsd how much is really murder cults yeah 
but I think what we we kind of see throughout there's there's not so much of us suspecting spiritual you know like what am I saying hijinks <laughs> this one <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's more that you kind of realize something's wrong but everybody's so gosh darn nice mm-hmm. that yeah. they talk to they're like this person couldn't possibly be a killer this person couldn't possibly be wanting these mm-hmm. things to happen they're yep. just like oh we just dropped them off at the train station because yep. i mean the first devastating thing i mean once once they get to sweden and you know it's kind of this whole thing where you know he doesn't tell his bros until she's coming up to the apartment and they're like hey i invited her to sweden but she's not coming you guys like yeah. she said yes but she's not coming and, the yeah, super cool and obnoxiously beautiful Florence Pugh's not going to yeah. come. Okay, guys, <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that that whole scene, like in, in the apartment where they're all sitting on the couch, the going back to the cinematography and the blocking of the shot, it's very separated where they're all on the couch. She's in the chair on the other side and she's framed in the mirror as by herself, like in the front. And it's very like, juxtaposition between there's the them and there's Florence Pugh and there's no cross. Yeah. And she's the outsider in this group. She's not really welcome. Um, but her dick boyfriend is like bringing her along. Yeah. She's isolated before she goes overseas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it's such a, it is such a, a wild journey for Florence Pugh's character because she is constantly feeling like, oh, it's me. I'm the one making him like this. I'm pushing too hard. And when she's talking to her friend on the phone, like, oh, I, I, I know I shouldn't push him like this, though. I'm, I'm trying to make him break up with me. And it's like, listen, like, <laughs> there's no such thing as that. Like, he's either a person you can lean on or he's not. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's just such i mean and it's like a devastating thing because it's she's having this conversation even before her family dies that she's mm-hmm. thinking about this and then it's like she's already has this inherent guilt that like oh i'm just a burden and it's like no he's just a dick who's made you feel like a burden and now you feel like a burden even though you have the right to be more of a burden than any other time in your whole life <laughs> right i think it speaks a lot to like once they're in sweden it's things are already dysfunctional but if there was any care from this friend group to Danny at all, you'd think that the person that just went through the trauma of having a sister commit suicide and murder your parents. Hey, maybe don't go to the part of the, of the ritual where the old people jump off a cliff. Yeah. Like, like the guy that plays Josh, uh, or well, Josh, the character, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what it is because he studied the Harga and he's just standing back there, like smile on his face, like watch this guys. And, and just instant terror. Right. And you just see her drop. And I mean, how else would you react if you just lost your entire family? Yeah. The character of Pele is so interesting to me, especially on the second time where you kind of seen how he's manipulated the circumstances to get him over there. Cause the first time through you feel like, Oh, he's the one friend that sort of seems like he realizes something obviously like, Oh, she's not okay. Like, and he's checking on her and he's trying mm-hmm. to be nice to her. And he's like, you know what? Actually you should come. And like, I'm glad you're coming yep. because I think he, he knows this is kind of like the perfect situation for her 
it's just a person is like, we're probably not going to sacrifice you. You're probably going to find the support that I think you can need. You're going to join. Well, and that's the question is, does he know or is he involved? Is he leading them to their demise or is he really just an idiot? And he doesn't know. Yeah. Which <laughs> I, I mean, we know the answer by the end, but yeah. obviously it's, de- it's a great, little tension pull because you really don't suspect him because he is so nice again it's this whole thing of this the harga are such nice people that you're like Mm -hmm. they couldn't possibly have bad intentions and it's even like the most disturbing thing is like when at christian at the end and i know we're jumping ahead but when he gets paralyzed and he's sitting in like the the chair and the girl's opening his eyes like oh christian like oh you're awake oh good good Mm -hmm. like not realizing like yeah we're about to sentence you to your death and we know that your girlfriend's going to let you go and die but you burn yeah but (laughs) she's so she's got a smile on her face like oh glad you're all right you know it's like oh and by the way you're surrounded by your dead filleted friends yeah like I mean, yeah. it's like like a cult of Mr. Rogers, just like <laughs> <laughs> are you, disarming. Are you feeling OK today in the neighborhood? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Can we have a horror version of Mr. Rogers? I feel like that would actually That's, play really well. I was just thinking your Mr. Rogers kind of sounds like George W. <laughs> George, no George H.W. Bush H.W. Yeah. Now now read my lips <laughs> Now nah, Mr. I'm, Rogers I'm not gonna do it I'm not gonna put my sweater on <laughs> not, oh, oh oh here come my shoes Nope not gonna do it Not gonna do it uh, Somewhere Dana Carvey is crying <laughs> <laughs> The crazy thing though with Midsummer, I think is that There isn't anything hidden in shadow Everything's hidden in plain sight And we see that because it's all wide open spaces and like what a unique way to tell a horror story where it's setting it in the brightest like possible thing. It'd be like having like it's almost like a beach murder, right? Of like, oh, here's this like beautiful paradise, but underneath there's bad things going on. And it's just like one by one, each of them disappear. And yet like people know things are wrong, but they're like, eh, I think I'm in an okay circumstance. So maybe it's fine there's nowhere to hide the jump scare right I mean, which kind of like just goes back to the ariaster brilliance in just building tension and dread because um, mm-hmm. he still does it even in like the brightest sunniest shiniest happiest movie horror movie you could possibly watch yeah i don't know i think there's something to be said for how he's able to kind of like mislead you even when they have the other couple i completely forgot about the other couple that like mm-hmm. um pele's brother brought over mm-hmm. yeah did you, you just like spread your arms like yeah. <laughs> i know I'm, I'm i've got yeah. the italian part of me that's like i'm a hand speaker and <laughs> oh so I, I thought you were imitating the, the one guy the, the, who the gets thing that yeah yeah oh and he's still alive and he's got his like lungs out his back oh yeah well i think i was kind of thinking about that <laughs> yeah, you and i had the same thing we're like he did the thing i thought you guys had just a moment yes i, I did the thing <laughs> I thought you guys were noting how I keep knocking the the, the mic because I keep I the, the listening audience keeps hearing these little pings and they're like, "What the hell is that?" It's like, no, it's me being an idiot knocking my mic over and over as I'm gesturing at, at these two guys in the room. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's these awful ways that these people die, and I think it's like because I mean, there's really not a whole lot to the plot. We keep following this the ceremony. We see these old people like commit suicide, and I think even in that context it's presented in a way that like yes 
some of the people are horrified. Like Florence Pugh's Danny is horrified. The couple that Pelly's brother brings over are horrified. But at the end of the day, they're like, well, this is just their society. And they're like, you guys have to understand. These people were old. Like they, this was their journey. It came to an end. And in a way, you're almost sort of like gaslit into accepting that that's just their tradition. Or just, that, you know, you, okay. you, you accept the idea like, oh, well, maybe if I was old and sickly, this might be the best choice. Like, you right. know. Yeah. Or like, oh, I don't want to be a burden after I am so old I can't take care of myself anymore, which I don't think either of those people who did that are at that point, but <laughs> no. Like well, they all seem real s- svelte. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think there's a funny detail that you don't really notice because we constantly are seeing them. They're like, oh, we're having a nine-day feast, right? They're having this big old feast. Like, And something I noticed this time and I finally read about it, the people in the Harga are not eating. Like they're dipping their forks into their food and they're just touching the tip to their mouths, but they're not actually eating. They're almost mm. like performing some sort of uh, like uh, like a, almost like a hunger strike of sorts. Uh, like a fast. Yeah. yeah. And it's like and when you don't look at it close enough, you don't realize that's what's happening until you, you kind of get to the end. You're like, oh, the feast is probably after this. The sacrificial ceremony takes place. And yep. They order like dominoes after. <laughs> <laughs> like, Danny, do, do you want something? Are you a Hawaiian pizza? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it matches your flowers. Yeah. Pineapple. The wings are surprisingly good. <laughs> <laughs> the wings coming out the guy's back. Are like, <laughs> <laughs> there is some very horrible, horrible tortures, but I think, and we can probably fast forward to the end. Cause I mean, yeah, it's just a continuous cycling of events. Josh, played by William Jackson Harper, disappears. Mark, played by William Poulter, disappears. William Poulter is just a jackass, like, mm-hmm. snarky idiot who's very funny in this, but also, <laughs> I mean. Doesn't he get turned into, like, a human soccer ball, basically? I thought he turned like, a big dummy. Yeah. Like, they, like, stuff oh, him or something. Yeah, you're right. And, like, the, the kids guy. even, like, are playing a game called Skin the Fool. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly that's what, what happens. Is. Is they yep. kind of turn him into a big, like, stuffed doll. Yeah, until we ultimately realize, well, one, Christian's getting, uh, like, seduced by Pele's sister into this mm-hmm. weird sex scene where he's surrounded by naked women. And, like, Move, so I saw Midsummer and Bo is Afraid with my wife and her mother. Oh, no. <laughs> That's rough. Oh, just there's some sex scenes that I would never want to watch by myself, to be honest. Yeah, just not at all. <laughs> Let alone with people that I interact with. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, and if the health code violations at that place. Oh, yeah, the uh, the PUBT. <laughs> or the pubie pie. <laughs> or that. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, I mean, Christian's basically raped because of a love drug. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Danny doesn't see it that way. And then the, the Harga as the manipulative cult that they are, they use that situation to further indoctrinate her with emotional smothering. Yeah. And you know, that it's, it, as the more you watch it, you're like, God, they really are planning like all of this. Oh yeah. No, I mean, they, they have, they have clearly been building up to us. They present this barn that's in the back of the field as a temple mm-hmm. and only to realize, yeah, it's a sacrificial altar essentially for where they're going to put nine people in there and basically burn them alive or dead. I mean, in most cases they were dead and except for the couple that were left alive, including Christian, which at that point you start to feel a little bad for him, but you're also like, 
you kind of brought this on yourself. And he's kind of doing the thing where, like, we've talked about how these subvert horror movies, but also he's doing the horror movie thing. All the assholes got theirs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which and, is a slasher thing. Yeah, <laughs> and sewed into a bear skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's an asshole. He's definitely way dead. Um, But to your point about the subversion, like, just the, the way that you get there. Like, you don't even really realize that you got there until you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean... It's 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 just a it's an emotional roller coaster and you were even just watching this and you're like, oh, it's it's wincy. I mean, you can't imagine as being like paralyzed, unable to move and being stuck in this barn as people are being like just burned alive or mm-hmm. or dead. Yeah, like, and, and that scene with the one guy who's like because there's like the willing sacrifices and mm-hmm. the people who are there and they're given some like. The whatever the poppy I think I don't know if it's that but it's that idea where they are numbed yeah, but, but then all of a sudden it hits him and he just starts screaming yep. and I was just upsetting very upsetting because then everybody else outside is yelling with him and screaming mm. with him mm, and that empathy yeah, yeah. It, and it's just oh it's there's something about like the most unsettling like community of Ned Flanders who is just like, <laughs> has it out for you you know and I mean. I think Midsummer is definitely a very ambitious effort, and I'm glad he did it. But I don't know any other thoughts on Midsummer. I mean, not nothing really for me. I mean, it's it fits the Ari Aster mold. It's you know his it's his take on folk horror, yeah, which was successful. Yeah, and this is like the movie that people talk about the most i think this is probably his most successful film critically i would think because like this is the movie like people scorsese are like talking about still yeah like i've never heard scorsese talk about uh hereditary but he's talked about bo is afraid and midsummer a lot Which I think, again, is a very high compliment to have somebody who has been emulated time and time again. Yeah. I mean, speaking of a Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix movie, Joker is very much Taxi Driver, like, mm-hmm. to yeah. a T. Yeah. Yeah, like, this is the better version of that, I feel, where it's like, um, you have Scorsese following you versus you just, like, completely copying Scorsese. Yeah, right. Yeah. And also, like, I've seen Killers of the Flower Moon. I can definitely see the hereditary and Bo's Afraid in that movie, which is pretty awesome to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Midsummer had a budget of $9 million, so it didn't <laughs> even get made for more than hereditary. Grossed $48 million. So, in comparison... Not as financially successful, but critically well received. I think some people even consider this his best. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was going to be a take I would come out of it with. I don't know that I feel that way. Um, I think it's definitely, I think like you said, it's maybe his second best. And I don't know. It's it, it, We'll debate it after we talk about Bo is Afraid, but... It's definitely, like I said, an ambitious movie that I think it's going to continue to change as people continue to visit it and talk about it. But uh, after that, obviously, he had one more big idea for a horror movie that he wanted to do. Or we'll even talk about this. Is is if Boa Afraid. Is it a horror movie? Um, but it was kind of this this third part of his emotional grief trilogy thing. 
So the film had been in development for some time because he had that 2011 short film entitled Bo that essentially served as the basis for a sequence in the feature film, which I believe was the sequence where at the beginning where he loses his keys as he's trying to go visit his mom and suddenly a lot of things happen. (laughs) So, um, in 2014, a draft of the script started circulating on the internet, and Ari Aster described the film in many ways, including initially as a nightmare comedy, a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but Bo's just going to his mom's house. <laughs> and if you pumped up a 10-year-old full of Zoloft and had him get your groceries. <laughs> It's also kind of like sending a stone person to a convenience store who's got paranoia up the wazoo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. for sure. So Bo was afraid after it. So it was four years after um, Midsummer was made. So it took a while for him to really get this idea off the ground. Get and COVID in there, too. I mean, that's a big yeah. piece of it. Because it probably would have come together a little bit quicker. But yeah, he had a balanced schedule. Joaquin Phoenix was also coming off working on some movies. I mean, he had Joker, which I think was also 2019. And come on, come on. Yeah, come on, come on. And um, yeah, I remember the initial title for this film was called Disappointment Boulevard, which then he eventually changed it to Bo is Afraid, since it was taking so much inspiration from the movie Bo. And it's definitely. Whatever you expected after watching those first two, I kind of was even asking at the time, what could this movie be? And I still wasn't prepared for the anxiety storm that we got. It's basically the id of the trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a three hour panic attack. You just there, there's no getting away from it. It's definitely his most abstract movie mm-hmm. it definitely challenge it's very freudian it definitely challenges a lot of um not necessarily family dynamic but specifically like mother son dynamic um and i think this one in particular there's as crazy as as hereditary and midsummer are they're pretty straightforward they're pretty literal like what you even if you don't realize you're seeing it what you're seeing is what you're getting yeah versus Bo is afraid is very like out there and it's very how much of what i just saw actually happened like how much is in Bo's head and and a lot of the things that he's dealing with are very it's a lot of symbolism it's a lot of allegory it's a lot of like there's no way most of this happened, um, but you kind of get it, you get there at the end. And then even the ending is very, like, very blocked differently from the whole rest of the movie. And you can tell that there's I feel like there's a lot more personal for Ari Aster in Bo is Afraid yes. than in the other two. For sure. Mm, it's a thing that he talks about where he says he tries to make every movie like he's not going to be able to make another one Mm -hmm. which with the way hollywood is and what they're leaning towards makes sense Mm -hmm. and i think this is like the epitome of that this is him like if i don't get to make another one i'm putting all of it in there yeah and it's all in there it's a movie that you said it feels like a three-hour panic attack it also the plotting feels like that thing where you're going to sleep and then you think of something that stresses you out Mm -hmm. and then it compounds and builds and builds and builds and like 
I don't have like I have anxiety. I have things that I get very anxious about and it hits me, but I wouldn't say I have like debilitating anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, but I definitely felt kind of seen by this movie, even though it's like blown out of the water, extreme heightening. Yeah. yeah. You can break it down to like, oh, I totally get like all the stuff in this movie. At least that was my experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've ever had an anxious moment in your life, you will definitely understand what it was like. Or if you ever had a panic attack, you will understand what some of these things are like. It's the ultimate story of an unreliable narrator, though, too, where Mm -hmm. you're following somebody who is perceiving reality in a way like that maybe is actually how they perceive reality. Mm-hmm. Not saying that's what it is, but I mean, it's just these moments where you continues to see the same guy, like rush him at the door based on what was probably one moment in his life that yeah. this happened. But every single time he's always worried that that guy's going to try and get in the building right behind me. The mm-hmm. minute I open this door mm-hmm. and it's just, it's, it's so it's like, I think the, the, the ultimate magic trick. And, and again, I think there is always this like feeling that Ari Aster is kind of like showing you a sleight of hand the minute you're watching these movies. Cause you're like, what is what I'm seeing reality? Is this right? And then mm-hmm. it's like, it almost takes you having to watch it again to see how the trick is done. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I haven't had a chance to revisit this yet, but I have a feeling that even on a rewatch, this one's going to make less sense than the mm-hmm. other two. I, I think this is one that you could watch dozens of times and you're going to have a slightly different takeaway yeah. after every watch. Um, uh, this one is also like, it's also his most political horror movie. Mm. If you can call it a horror movie, it, it's, it's suspense and it's tension, but I, I, it doesn't, it defies category. It doesn't mm-hmm. neatly fit into a horror box, but he does have the, um, you know, the political commentary of the, uh, inner city or or metropolis deterioration in America, or at least as is perceived by certain groups, um, you have what I think is probably the most darkly funny line in the entire movie of a police officer holding a gun at a naked bow telling him don't force me to shoot you mm-hmm. like and how scared the cop is yeah, yeah and he's literally being attacked by the naked stabber dude and and the cop is like i'm gonna kill you if you don't stop scaring me very on the nose um you also have the whole like second act of uh middle America or, or sub suburban America as being really the dark, like undertone of, of America. And you, I yeah. mean, you've got a mom popping pills to cope with the loss of her son. Yeah. You have, um, uh, Nathan Lane in, the, in a dad that sounds like a sitcom dad from the eighties. Mm-hmm. You've got the, 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 darkly angry screaming daughter and then uh the deceased son's war buddy turned killing machine who could have when i watched it the second time might have had something to do with why the son's not there because they say at one point like he'd attack his own yeah like you know yeah i was gonna say crew members but like platoon yeah platoon yeah and like they don't say that's what happened but like and also did you know that guy is the guy from beginning of inglorious bastards the no. french guy i did not but he's like 
heavier and a bigger you know oh, role man. which is crazy to think about just two Jeez. different roles wow the dad that's at the house that uh christoph waltz visits? yep wow. that's him wow that's pretty incredible I but did not know that I didn't either. Dead some cuts. I mean, and this movie has a heck of a cast. I mean, we already mentioned that Parker Posey's in this. We haven't talked a lot about the actors, but I think we're going to kind of get yeah. in a little bit. Amy Ryan's great. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, wonderful. But I think the there there's just so much throughout this, and I think you calling this a political movie. I mean, yeah, and I think it's it's politicized even in the idea of like here is somebody who's been stuck in like arrest development for mm-hmm. pretty much their entire life trying to figure out what they want to do with their life or trying to find any semblance of normalcy. And it's like, they're just completely paralyzed in every decision and every moment that they live. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you feel it for him. You, you kind of pull for Bo throughout this, even realizing though, that it's like, does he ever really want to get better? Like, <laughs> he's kind of a, I mean, I don't want to call him a piece of shit because like, he's clearly, been stunted by his relationship with his mother he's basically an eight-year-old mm-hmm. um you see it in how he dresses and how he acts how he engages with conversation in the opposite sex um you see it in the flashbacks with his mom like his mom so his dad dies um we can go into later exactly how or supposedly how but his dad dies his mom clearly like blames him for it but at the same time, doesn't want to be alone. So she manipulates Bo into never wanting to like leave her comfort or embrace or protection. Yeah. And the, he's a now 50 year old man. That is the result of what look, what growing up like that looks like. Um, and how much is in his head, I, how much is real, how much is actually happening. I tend to think that there's a couple schools of thought on Bo's afraid and that one, none of it's real. Uh, it's all in Bo's head Two, um, his mom who is like funny. You say Willy Wonka or, or, um, uh, wizard of, Oz. wizard of Oz. Um, she's like the wizard. She controls everything. Yeah. Did she really control everything that happens in the movie? Does she ever hand in it? Or is it kind of a combination of both? And I, I tend to think that it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's like whether it's, you know, say he gets a missed call or something. I don't really remember how the beginning goes. I think it's just that brain train of thought where you're like, oh, what happened? Did this happen? Did this happen? If that happened, then this might happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the movie that like paranoid anxiety thought those things that run through your head happens and plays out in the movie. And that's yeah. what I think the movie is. Yeah. And so it's, it's constantly you w- trying to track what Bo is doing when it really could have been the most simple, like two hour segment of, mm-hmm. of life of like, he went outside. He clearly didn't want to go on this trip. He left his keys in his door on purpose. He came back, didn't know where they were. And suddenly he's like, oh, I don't know. And then it's just going through all the different things of what a trip out there that could look like. And what if his mom had died? And what if all this happened? And Because, I mean, and it's a very watchable movie, even in that regard, even though the whole time you're kind of feel like you got, like, creepy crawlies all over your skin because you're just like, ugh. It's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Again, I know the, the sequence in Hereditary where, you know, you're kind of uncomfortable after – 
um yeah millie shapiro dies you're still feeling that for a lot of bo is afraid yeah. just like it's like watching a safties movie like trying to do like a horror movie and i do feel i was able to laugh more than i was in the other films even on the first go through i think Definitely. there's a lot of like funny shit and bo is afraid from the get-go oh I mean, yeah you mentioned nathan lane like he's very <laughs> darkly funny um, there's way more humor. There's way more situational comedy of and physical comedy on top of it. Even Joaquin Phoenix, who I'm, I don't typically think of as being a physical comedic actor. Mm-hmm. Like he's got great timing in this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah. No, I mean, he definitely, I mean, it's, it's no shortage of moments where there is a little bit of comic relief, but it's almost like, Never enough, because then it follows that up with a sequence. And we talk about him making abstract sequences. I think that nothing really sticks out in my head more than the whole scene in the middle. We we literally stop at a moment where Bo finds himself in the woods, running from that French guy who has the <laughs> yeah. you know the the war buddy that like chased him from the house as he's trying to escape. And he finds himself at like this theater camp in the middle mm-hmm. of the woods, which is the most theater camp shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that part a lot. It's like a theater (laughs) troupe just chilling and they're like, we're going to put on plays in the middle of the woods. And he sits down to watch this play where he's almost kind of envisioning his life of what it could be if he Mm -hmm. had settled down and had children. And, and it's like, and you almost kind of wonder to a point of like, did this happen? Is this going to happen for him? And, and it's just, and it's almost like, the fact that he's watching a play, you're like, yeah, this is probably all fiction in his head of things that he would have loved to have had happen. And it's kind of accepting that it, it can't happen because he's just not capable of that type of life. And it's just, it's a, it's a jarring, but beautiful sequence where you're just still like, you almost are like watching a whole other movie in the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that to me, I felt like was like his like 2001 space odyssey. Like that gave me the vibes of that. Just like a moment where it's just going to break the movie and do this, you know, kind of out there thing, abstract thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole, even the art direction of that whole sequence is wildly different than the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, and it sets it, it sets itself apart kind of as its own standalone thing. And I like to think that it's basically, uh, Bo is basically on a hero's journey, right? Like if you think of the Odyssey, he even cro- literally crosses a threshold to begin his journey by leaving his apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even before that, leaving the womb. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, to literally his mother screaming at him about why he's not crying. And right. then like you have this sequence in the woods where he's literally he's seeing what I think his life could have been if not for his overbearing controlling mother yeah and he's seeing his life as the hero and what it would have been and he cries at the end realizing that like this is that this is what i wanted this is what i've always wanted i will never have that because of where i am now yeah and it's it's sort of funny because i think in in one school of thought right it's almost like ari aster put another short film in the middle of this movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and but at the same end you know hitting in on this idea of like there are like so many of these monomythic like elements to this you could teach this in a mythology class and talk about like even just all the oedipal things that are going on with Bo and his mom and like the fact that the whole driving force of this is that he finds out that she died after he didn't come to visit her Mm -hmm. and he's trying to voyage to get to this funeral Mm -hmm. and it's like 
why is this such a chore to get to his house? And, but yeah, it is. He's like Odysseus trying to get mm-hmm. back home. And, yep. and there's all these things that happen. And man, it's just, it, it really, really, you're just along for the ride, just not knowing what you're watching is true. Or if, yeah, mm-hmm. if he's just chilling in his apartment and like, this is all the things that can happen. Yeah. But I don't know, the ending then. <sighs> you get to that, he finally gets to the house. And, you know, you start seeing the tentacles of Mona Wasserman, the mother, um, Patty Lapone. And that starts that's where it starts creeping in of like, did she do this? Like, did she plan this? Because you start seeing like the the Wasserman company, like Mm -hmm. uh, employee posters. And even on the first watch, I picked out like two or three faces where I was like, these are like Nathan Lane is on the poster. Oh, wow. um, yeah. They have like the the slasher dude that's trying to get in his apartment. He's an employee. Like I guarantee you on another couple watches, there's all over the place. It's, it's like the cult be, members in Hereditary. Yeah. yeah. Is that like they're going to be everywhere. These are employees of his mom. And then also that goes into like she used the nanny to fake her death sorry spoilers um but we're spoiling it all i mean yeah i mean we're kind of walking through it piece by piece but that even even that picking that employee to fake the death i think is another controlling aspect of Bo because that was Bo's closest thing to a real mom yeah and she hated it uh mona wasserman hated it Bo's real mom hated it and i think it's on purpose that she chose that employee to die, to fake her own death. Yeah. And then, I mean, we got to talk about the penis monster, right? Like, Oh yeah. I, I read, I read a thing online and they called him job of the nuts. And I, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I thought that was just perfect. No way. I, I hope he books more. I mean, just <laughs> like the, 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 God, that whole sequence, that's another thing where you're like, we are way off the reservoir here. We are like, this isn't actually happening. This is definitely in Bo's head. We're going into the attic. This is very Freudian of like mind. The penis monster, it's not his dad. Like her mom didn't have sex with a penis monster with spider legs. Um, I, I think it's supposed to be like, Bo's repressed sexuality. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the twin brother, quote unquote, that's like chained up with the penis monster. I think that that's actually supposed to be emblematic of like Bo's independent self Mm. that was locked away by his mom and is withering away. Yeah, there's like a watches to that or foreshadowing that because he has that dream where he's in the bathtub yeah. and he sees his mom like kind of pulling on this other kid. Yeah. That, you know, is he the kid? Is he the person watching? Yeah. And she puts him up in the attic. Mm. And then after that, like he comes down from the attic after seeing the monster. And the mom is like, you idiot. That wasn't a dream. That was a memory. And you're like, that's horrible. Right. Like you're the, the, um, the lengths that this mother has gone to like just smother Bo 
is it's not surprising that he turned out the way he did. No, I know. I mean, it's like it is the embodiment of like sexual repression. I think that's a great thing. And then they even have him. I'm still like trying to figure out if Parker Posey actually have a heart attack like after they <laughs> yeah. have sex. Like, yeah. it, it's because it's just like here's this moment where he sees so afraid that, yeah, he's been told his whole life if he has sex, he's going to have like this heart issue because that's what killed his dad. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like and the whole lineage. Not just his dad, but his grandfather. Like, every male in the line dies on first ejaculation. Like, what a way to, like, stunt, sexually stunt a kid. Yeah. It's just crazy. And, I mean, I just, yeah, I don't know. Or did something happen to Parker Post? Did the the mom plan something? Mm-hmm. We don't know because we know she was a former employee, too. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the whole idea of, like, his mom just being... I don't know this this burden in his life, and I mean, like, what does that say about Ari Aster? I mean, mm-hmm. I really, it's like I don't know. He even needs to do a tell-all book. He'd be like, it's all on screen. That's <laughs> figure it out. Oh, is afraid is a pretty like lambasting of any kind of mother figure interaction, and this that's also kind of why I was making the point that like I think Bo is afraid has the most of Ari personally in it yeah. out of, and it's interesting because he's done interviews and stuff of like, ever, of course everyone's going to ask him, what does this movie mean? Cause it's fucking impossible to figure out what this movie means. Yeah. Um, and his response has always been like, I made this movie to be interpreted by those who watch it for me to give my interpretation would be a disservice to my audience. Um, and it's, funny that he says it that way because i actually think the very ending with the trial Mm. uh is actually an inward look at his relationship with the audience in the background as cinema Mm. goers Mm -hmm. because ari's on trial ari aster's on trial he's the filmmaker he's making the decisions every single decision that he makes in making this movie, other movies, any movie is going to be put under a microscope and, and judged fairly or unfairly by those in the trial. And at the end of the day, I think it's very interesting that like at the end, they all just kind of get up and walk away and none of it actually mattered. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the theater. I wanted to stand up and start applauding. (laughs) I thought it was such a boss move just to roll credits like that. Yeah. Because I was in a theater with people who were, uh, they were not feeling it at first, yeah. you know, like, and uh, I just wanted to be like, nah, this is this is all good I mean, right here. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's literally drowning at the end, right? And it's yeah. like, and it's just mm-hmm. you just wonder, yeah, is is Ari Aster? Did he kind of foresee the results of this? Because this movie was his first official bomb. Yeah, it was. Uh, Budgeted at thirty-five million, it only made eleven and a half million at the box office. Hate that to feels, see it. That feels low, right? I, oh, like, it's extremely yeah. low. Yeah, I mean, we just talked about Hereditary made eighty million. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so. But I don't think anyone was interested in seeing this movie unless they knew who Ari Aster was, and that's a small percentage of movie-going public. Right. Like, but, I don't think yeah. a lot of people were watching the trailer for Bo Was Afraid thing, and that's for me. Well, and I think that's the hard part of like, he's built this resume of being a premier horror director and this film does not fit 
as a pure horror. There are horror elements. There, there's the sa- same through line manipulation of the family dynamic. Um, you know, you still have uh, the dysfunction, stunted growth. You have all the things that are in all the other movies in, in, as commentary on the family dynamic and the subversion of that. But it doesn't fit into like really horror. Yeah. And that's not going to get you to box office. Just like you had to. I don't know. This one's weird because like. You kind of had to like know that this is what the movie was going to be. Uh huh. Ahead of time. But at the same time, I don't think anyone was really prepared for this. Yeah. And I think it's it's definitely a guy who relies on good reviews, good press. Because I think Hereditary was such a huge word-of-mouth movie. Mm-hmm. People are like, you will not believe what this movie does. And then you get a lot of people coming off the goodwill of like, oh, he made another horror movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I got to go see Midsummer." And even then, it was like, okay, modest, modest results. But, yeah. We're also at a time, though, too, where the movie theater has not been great. I mean, this year there have been big movies, but they're fewer and far between, you know, because we had, you know, John Wick in March was probably one of the bigger ones. But, you know, even relatively it made 400 million, which is great for a movie. But, mm. you know, it's like you expected that to be gangbusters. And then you had Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which came out the, mar- the month after that. But it was kind of a dead period in April. And it's just like nobody was going to the movies mm-hmm. until Barbenheimer happened. And suddenly it's like everybody's like back. You know, we're like, yeah. got it. We're back, baby. And so I think you have a lot of mix of things of people who just were like, all right, I'll just kind of wait till it comes out. Well, that's the thing. It's about to hit Netflix, so I'm very curious. I think this movie's going to get, I wouldn't call it a second life, but I think you're going to see it talked about more because more people sure. are going to find it on Netflix. I think its residuals are going to do really well. I mean, and this also goes back to like movies pre-streaming where they didn't, they weren't so reliant on the blockbuster take like because they had the residuals, they had the, the after marketing, they had, you know, DVD sales and all that or VHS prior to that. Um, where they could pick up on the back end and today you just you really have to hit a streaming service to get any of that tertiary cash flow um and i think because of that people aren't making movies like bows afraid it's become this has turned into a cinema rant but it's become much more formulaic driven or you know kind of dumbed down blockbusters uh, as opposed to something like this, which is extremely ambitious. Even if it's not for you, it's, it's a very artistic movie. Yeah. And and we're not getting a lot of those. And I think that's why a lot of people are glomming onto horror though, too, because they want to know where the different movies are that aren't a superhero movie that aren't a, Mm -hmm you know, whatever else. It's just, it's not just something that's like, ah, yes, here's an engine where Jared Leto is going to be something bullshitty. (laughs) You know, it's like, you're going to actually get somebody who has something to say and yeah, whether or not you're going to necessarily like it, maybe not, but it's also, it's just a different world than five years ago when people were running to the theaters before COVID to go and see a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, and I think, you know, again, whether Bo is afraid is a horror movie is up to it. I think it's more 
psychological anxious thrill ride but you know it's it's something Mm -hmm. but i guess the big question then is so where does ari aster go from here you know what's what's next in his book a western apparently right is that the thought yeah i thought it was some sort of western i would really like to see an ari aster ari aster western Mm -hmm. i feel like that that's he's so good at like taking the expected from a movie style and kind of giving it to you, but in his own way and then twisting it to fit his narrative. And I feel like there's so much room to play in a Western that it would just be like him in a sandbox. Just have at it. Yeah. I think we're, we're in a coulda, woulda, shoulda territory for sure. We are. And I'm going to say mine real simply. Uh, you do you, Bo. Because I, I like what he's doing. I don't want to be like, I guess if I was going to pick something, I'd say, look, I'm not, I don't want it anytime soon. I want you to make a bunch of movies. But, you know, throw, throw us another whore, like straight up whore. You know, yeah, give us one more. Yeah. I don't need it anytime soon, but I want at least one more from you in the vein of Hereditary. But I don't want to be like, I want him to do this. I don't want him to do that. I'm excited to see whatever he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that Jordan Peele has kind of glommed onto as well, because even if you look at a movie like um, uh, Nope, it's you kind of come in expecting a horror movie and there's unsettling, scarier elements. But that's not on mm-hmm. a horror movie all throughout. The scariest stuff is not even the alien related thing. It's the stuff with the chimp, right? Like. <laughs> God, nope, so good. It is a good. It movie. took me a few. Like I like, always liked it, but man, that's that's a great movie. I think. Yeah, I I think Peel's got another trilogy right there. Of I mean, he came out with Get Out, which is fantastic. It's really tight. Us, that's my favorite of his three. That was just that one. I think is more pure horror. That one was just really really good. And I liked Nope. It wasn't my favorite. Um, but I think that kind of ties into the trilogy here of I didn't love Bo is Afraid. I didn't dislike it. But what it emphasizes is I want to see Ari Aster taking risks in movies. Yeah. And I don't really care what it is, but I want to watch it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's definitely become a director now, I think, where it's like, if you have seen his work, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to want to see the next thing he does. Definitely. You know, he's got like a Fincher thing going Mm -hmm. for him right Mm -hmm. now. And David Fincher's kind of in the zeitgeist because he's got The Killer coming out very shortly. Tomorrow on Netflix. Is that right? Yeah. Ooh. I'm excited. Again, talking about the state of cinema, we have (laughs) this big movie from this director who's directed... I would say uh, he's kind of laid the path a little bit for Ari Aster. David Fincher did mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And cause none of his movies are outright horror, but they have very spooky elements. Yeah. They have elements. They are very dark dramas and that have some humorous things to them, but, um, but sorry, Fred, what were you saying? Uh, I was just going to say, um, I don't remember the exact gist of it. I was just going to say, I don't want to see an Ari Aster movie come into Netflix, straight to Netflix. Because on my secondary watch of Bo is Afraid, I was like, this is good, but it does not hit like it did in theaters. 
I mean, here, here's the hot take. I don't think either of these movies hit the same way they hit in theaters. True. There's something about seeing these movies on a big screen, especially when you have, because one of the, one of the biggest things I noted about Hereditary, and I made the mistake of watching it with like a light on here, and you can't do it. No, you're not. missing so much because what makes that movie so good is noticing things in the background while you're on a still scene for like three minutes and suddenly you notice somebody's moving around and you're like, oh, God, it makes your skin <laughs> yeah. crawl. Yeah, it's what's in the background. Is yeah, important. and I think that's the thing. These are movies that are meant to be watched in a dark setting with no distractions. It's just you in the movie so that you really take in what he's trying to show you. Mm. So, yeah, I would love to see another horror movie out of him. But I think at the same end, though, too, if he's willing to take another swing and be like, yeah, I got a Western in my pocket that I really want to show you, like, a really, like, kind of dark version of the West, sort of like a Deadwood of some sort, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a little less, mm, it's a little fin- fantastical, but still. Yeah, I get you. But I'd also love to see him try something that just is a little bit different, like him do something like a John Wick where he is kind of trying something more action and start putting those chops to the test. Like I'd love to see him do a long sequence in a room, kind of like the daredevil, like fight in the hallway scene, right? Where he's just working his way through guys. Cause that, that show was filmed so beautifully and man, I don't know. I just think he could bring something to that. Any other coulda, woulda, shoulda you guys want to share? No, I do want to see. Um, he he produced that new Nicolas Cage movie, and that's another thing. He's like doing more produ- producing stuff, and I'm curious to see what that looks like. Him kind of being taking the producer seat. It's the what new movie. movie. Is that? I don't remember the name of it, but I know the plot is that Nicolas Cage is some sort of professor who starts appearing in people's dreams. Oh, oh is it dream scenario? Yes, that's it. Yeah, there you and go. And that's produced by Ari Aster. So that's another thing I'm excited to see, the kind of projects he's going to put his name behind. It's interesting that he's doing that, too, because that's like Sam Raimi did that, where he had his director movies, and then he moved into a producer role. To He still like threw a little flavor on it, but he wasn't like calling all of the shots exactly and you can see that flavor like when i told you that plot if i told you that was the next plot of the next Ari Aster movie you'd be like yeah that sounds like it mm-hmm. sounds like an Ari Aster movie yeah nicholas cage it sounds like someone who would be the lead of an Ari Aster movie mm-hmm. but, yeah yep which oh man i would love him to direct cage just to see mm-hmm. what he could do with him oh for sure the range of emotions yeah which is a perfect transition i think to talk about our power rankings for this week yeah we're clicking baby which is the top three performances in this trilogy. So we didn't spend a lot of time on the cast, but now it's time to throw down who are your performers. Nick, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I can I can start. I This is really hard because I feel like particularly, I mean, really all three of these movies, the, the impactful cast list is pretty short. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all nail it mm-hmm. like good, bad or otherwise, they all nail it. Yeah. And like everyone, I feel like with hereditary, everyone talked about Tony Collette. Everyone was talking about Tony Collette and she's fantastic and left her mark on that movie. And that movie is not the same without her mm-hmm. in that role. But I also think 
Alex Wolf, yeah, the kid that played Peter. I think he's got to be in my top three mm. because the there's there there's something different about a kid playing with PTSD. Yeah, that is it's either campy and misses the mark or they nail it and he nailed it Mm -hmm. and he jumped off the deep end to nail it i mean this kid broke his own nose on a desk going all out in this movie and it's every scene with him it hits the marks it hits the tone it's it is a perfect role yeah um which is really hard to do for especially I think that was one of his first feature movies and to be sounds right that like that impactful of a character um that that's got to be in my top three don't forget he's in Jumanji level up (laughs) (laughs) I did forget about that you know he's plays the rock I think he is yeah he's the rock's character I think you're right um, who else you got? I mean, it's hard because like still in hereditary, I Millie Shapiro, she's not in it very long, but she was perfect for the role. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't think of anyone else in that role. And I think that speaks to just how perfect of a casting it was. Um, I can't, I can't put her in my top three just because there's just not enough there to really put it up that high. Um, I think this, these are in no particular order, by the way, but I think number two is going to be Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Because. Oh man, just the level of anxiety and just the little ticks and the, the just real weight that he threw into that character is spectacular. Yeah. And I, I yeah, he's definitely in the top three. Of um, I, I also want to say Florence Pugh. I feel like that's a little bit of a cop out for number three. She's, she was excellent in midsummer. I feel like, Personally, I felt she gave the best performance of that movie. Um, if if I were not picking Florence Pugh and getting one actor from each movie, then I think I would go back to Tony Collette. Yeah. Just because that it was just a sensational performance. I mean, yeah, it's it was an Oscar worthy performance. Uh, yeah, there's no question. Those are good picks. Fred, what do you got? So yeah, I'll jump off of what you just said. I would put Tony Clay as my number one for me. It's the second time she's given an Oscar-worthy performance in a horror movie that got overlooked. I think this, and again, I'm going to bring up Sixth Sense. She's got that great scene in the car yeah. where uh, Haley Josman's telling her about her mother. Mm-hmm. Again, Hereditary and Sixth Sense are very similar movies. Yep. And um, I've seen it now. Right. So uh that one is number one for me, definitely overlooked. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a pew for number two. Oh Florence Pew for number two. 
And I almost wanted to share number three, like two actors, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to Nathan Lane because he comes in and just I know he's doing the Nathan Lane thing, but I have never laughed so hard when like Bo's freaking out about like having to get home and he's like, But you have got to rest, my brother. <laughs> just the way but uh, in a perfect world, I'd share three uh, with because they're just my guys. Nathan Lane and Richard Kind can share the uh, third part because sure. Richard yeah. Kind being menacing works. It that yeah. phone call, I felt like someone was being stern with me, and yeah. I was just watching. Yeah, oh man, it, those are those are great. I mean, it's it's pretty- every day your mother cannot rest her soul until you get back just like all of that like we're waiting though yeah he's got he's just channeling that same energy he's got he plays a good role on big mouth too it's just (laughs) so good um i mean it's hard to pick anybody else other than you guys brought up i think i would i mean tony collette's an easy number one with a bullet like Again, it's an Oscar-worthy performance that she didn't get even nominated for, which is a crime. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just putting pure emotion on the screen. And I think Ari Aster did such a great job finding people who could really imbue like real emotion. And like her response to her daughter dying is like some of the most heartbreaking stuff you'll ever hear because you can just hear it. it's like it feels so real. Um, and to that point, number two, I think I also would go with Florence Pugh and say she's also like lost people who mean a lot to her, tried to fight for these people or her sister and felt like not only that she failed, but also like, OK, now I'm also like deeply wounded to the point of like, how do you go on? And she is the worst person in the world to <laughs> lean on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess number three is hard. Because I did kind of want to go Nathan Lane. He's definitely an honorable <laughs> man. She's so good in that. And it's like it's like a year, good year for Nathan Lane, especially when he came back and like only murders in the building. And he's doing some really good work in there. Um, I think I would have to give it to probably Alex Wolf as well. Mm-hmm. And because Alex Wolf's just become one of my guys when he shows up. He's good. His first movie, by the way, or his first like real fer- feature length was not hereditary. It was The Sitter starring Jonah Hill. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh geez. It's a small role in there. That movie like is. David Gordon Green, right? Uh, Fred, the more we talk about this guy, the more I'm like, does he make that good of movies? <laughs> By the way, I saw Exorcist, the hair, the believer. Yeah. How was it? It was, it's, it's kind of a dry fart. Yeah. It's okay. nothing. It wasn't, it did not deserve to be taken out back and shot like people did, but mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a wet fart. Yeah, gotcha. that's too bad. That's unfortunate. But I think Alex Wolf has found himself a nice career. And I think one of the things you can say for Ari Aster is he's found people that cast that really elevate. Because like Florence Pugh, that was like a career announcing role when she was in Midsummer. I felt like once people saw her or even talked about her in that, she was on the radar of like, what else can she do? And it's like, and then she puts in like a real performance in a Marvel movie. And it's like, mm-hmm. damn. <laughs> and it's just, and she's, she's great. And all, and pretty much everything she's done, she got a rough loop in with Chris Pine too in that fucking mm-hmm. Harry Styles movie. I don't even know what it was called anymore. But mm-hmm. uh, don't, don't worry, darling. Never it. saw it. There you go. But yeah, I mean it's 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 just a great group of people. It's so hard to pick three. I do think 
they rise to the top. And you could make a lot of arguments for three. Gabriel Byrne, we talked about him before too. Just awesome. steady, steady hand. Just, I mean, did he deserve to get lit on fire at the end? <laughs> Maybe on. not, but hey, who didn't deserve to get lit on fire at the end of any of these <laughs> movies? Yeah. I was trying to think of the other movie that Alex Wolf was good in recently and all ties in. He was good in Pig. Yeah, with Nicolas Cage. Okay. Oh, is that movie excellent? I, that that's that needs the, a rewatch. That's the movie that makes me give faith of like you put Nicolas Cage and Ari Aster, he's gonna win an Academy Award. Oh hell like, yeah. He can do it. He can in the right situation. Uh, I mean, he's got range. He's got just enough crazy. Yeah. Um, so that could be our group coulda, woulda, shoulda. Is we want Nicolas Cage to get an Oscar in the Ari next Ari after movie. movie. Yeah. Ari really, he he was really the one of the most well prepared directors. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one other guy that I do want to note, and it's Ooh. it's a deep cut in Bo's Afraid. It's Julian Richings, and he mm-hmm. plays the therapist. No, he's this strange man at the theater camp that I think is that I think is Bo's real dad. That's a great dad. There you go. And like he's not in the movie very long, but there's just some weight behind the character. He's he kind of steals a little bit of the scene there a little bit, even with Joaquin Phoenix um shout out he also had a long running character spot in supernatural ah of course death always come um but just he was very well cast he as soon as i saw him i was like that guy's gonna be important so um gotta throw out Mm -hmm. there for that i did think you were gonna say the therapist which i do like from dune yeah oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> and that guy has been popping up in everything. He was in Devs on that TV show. A lot of great roles. It's just, I think, whoever Ari Aster is using to help him cast is just brilliant. Just wonderful, wonderful casting, wonderful performances in all of these. Really excited to see where he goes. I think that's, it's such an early part of his career. Only 37, and then just, that's really sticking in my craw. <laughs> So I think that gets us to the end of the episode here, guys. I think we've said more than I thought we were going to say about the Ari Aster movies, but I think that's because they are rich texts. There's a lot that's in these. I think we could have gone on for another hour talking about them, but you know that there'd be more time for that if we ever have more installments. Before we go, though, anything that you would like to plug? Nick, if you want to start, anything you would like to nothing really to plug right now um kids you better be sleeping um you're listening this far that's that's pretty much this is not the episode they should listen no definitely not (laughs) um fred anything for you just gonna let you plug the cast for us because that's all i got going on right now no that's all that i think i'll even share myself say the franchise podcast with fred and tom we're on facebook twitter instagram uh, threads kind of YouTube channel. Come find us out there. Send us an email at state of the franchise podcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or quotes for the show, leave us a review. Five stars, please. And uh, subscribe if you haven't yet. We got episodes every other week right now. And stay tuned for next time where we'll be talking about the MCU. <laughs> well, in, in, in a very abbreviated way we are going to do a, a little draft so uh stay tuned for then and uh we'll see you guys next time it's charged my phone drive